Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world and welcome to another episode of the deep dive with me Ayal Shai. Today I'm joined by Kate Hammer. Hi Kate. Hello Ayal. How are you? I'm doing mighty fine. And what will be the topic for discussion today? Today shall we speak about the polarity between agency and acceptance. And by agency I, I don't mean travel agency or recruitment agency or modeling agency I mean that unique human capacity to sense in a context what it is that I as a human might do Wow so first of all thank you for even saving me the question but I also really really like the uh, the framing of this. And this is fascinating to me. This is definitely a theme that has um, surfaced here on this podcast before and definitely on my mind. So, yeah, I'd like to ask you uh, where your interest with this began from a personal perspective, maybe even going back um, into childhood or whatever is a fitting uh, station to start the story with. So if I may, I'd love to tell you a tiny little story that happened when I was too young to remember and so was retold to me. Excellent. The context is I was the second born. I have an older brother who was 16 months older than me of a very different temperament. And then I arrived. And our father had a great sense of humor and would often, I wouldn't say go to great lengths to get a laugh, but was always looking in the space of everyday life for, for the humor. And something about their dynamic led my father, when I was a toddler, So maybe, let's say, two, two and a half. And my brother would have been sort of cresting, heading towards, cresting out of nursery school and heading towards kindergarten when children have a, a kind of new uh, physical and social autonomy. Mm -hmm. And my father used to say, Kate, touch your hands to your head. Now, toddler anatomy does not permit that in most cases <laughs> to be possible. <laughs> and I would try because as the younger sibling, I had my whole life had been organized around imitating the slightly larger and much larger people in my environment. I would try, I would fail, and I would get very angry. Now, I don't know if it ever happened. I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to imagine that my father would have done it more than once. 
But the reason that I know this story is that as a child, I was capable of explosive anger. And it Mm. was never generalized. It was always anger in response to a thwarting. And I have come to wonder whether they sort of, Freud talks about the primal scene as the child encountering intimate moments of the parents. I wonder if the primal scene of my anger was the experience of the, my body thwarting me. I could not follow that instruction. And it's not that I would have worried at the time or much later about disobeying. The thwarting was other people in my environment had arms that stretched so that their hands could lay on the top of their head and mine did not. And I think that's really, (laughs) I think that's really profound. Like I, I, I think that it's possible to do a kind of genealogy of my character based on the thwarting and the fact that I can now laugh about it. Wow. Yeah, I love it on so many levels. And I do think I love how you bring this into life and make it into a, an almost uh, mythical background that you that you grew up in, because there's no way to know if this is, um, uh, you know, exactly the truth or, or something like that. But that doesn't matter because you've weaved it into a into a meaningful uh, story for yourself and, and for your life. So I really like that, and I really like the um, even even just the the physical um, metaphor there with the hands, right? Because between agency and acceptance, it's almost like looking at the borders of this invisible sphere around us that we um, can uh, span with a reach, right? And whatever is inside of it is is what we can control presumably if we have the right knowledge we should uh, we should say that if we have the knowledge we can reach things that that are somewhere in this sphere and whatever is outside of us i think is is not for us to worry about or not directly uh, maybe we could shout to someone who who could do that but us ourselves are are limited in that way What's beautiful about your reading, Ayal, is um, you gave the image of the Renaissance, Da Vinci's, is it the Vesuvian? The Vitruvian. Vitruvian, yeah. Vitruvian man is, is that image of, of what can I as an individual touch in my span. And um, I think it's, I think one of the projects, so I'm, I was born in 1966 and I am deeply aware that my life spans to different centuries and that the characters of the diff- of the centuries are quite different. And um, the 20th century project in my personal experience was shaped by the movements of women to gain the status of men in society. And so that picture we could we could to summarize it we could we could take the da Vinci picture and take out the male body and we know it's male because it's naked isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we could insert a, a woman's figure. And if we did that 
if we did that montage directly and left the line drawing, there would still in that picture implicitly be a kind of Caucasian being there in the center of the world, which in many ways was my experience in, in the 20th century. Um, I was able to scrutinize my whiteness and my white privilege, but there wasn't the sense for me that the universe circulated around anyone but people who looked like me. Hmm. And um, it was towards the end of the 20th century that I became a migrant and um, I moved from one center of whiteness, the USA, the East Coast, to another center of whiteness, um, Britain, London, the capital city, were a very lopsided country. Uh, but it was my first experience of deeply making my home in a truly multicultural city. And uh, my understanding both of gender in the world and my understanding of whiteness in the world has thankfully evolved. I want to challenge you on that boundary. It is the case that good mental health relies on us having a good enough appraisal of what psychologists and coaches call the circle of influence. And it is folly. And the, the image in European literature is Don Quixote mm -hmm. to think that we can joust with entities beyond our circle of influence. That, that is the road to exhaustion. Mm -hmm. I think my middle age has been lived in the space of the question, how can I truly get a good enough picture of what my circle of influence may in fact be? Mm -hmm. Because for me, the defining difference between the 21st century and the 20th century is the digital technology that links you in Israel and me in London. And I had the great good fortune in the 1990s to be part of an online game that I think it launched in 1995. So in the social history of the internet, it could well be one of the first. And the game was a game of dialogue without borders hmm. premised on Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game. And The Glass Bead Game as a, as a construct, do you, do you know that book? Uh, I've read many of his books, but not this one, surprisingly. It's quite an impenetrable work. And I, I only read it because the person creating the game, who is a dear friend, said, I'm going to do this game based on this book. Can you read the book? <laughs> Uh, and I vividly remember reading it in a bed and breakfast in uh, Cape Cod, of all places. Um, so the book is premised on separations and hierarchies. And I think that's a really important kind of point to make about the book. The book is not a picture of utopia by any stretch of the means, by any stretch of the imagination. That's the words. Um, and so in a world that's premised on separation and hierarchy, the game itself is a game of dialectics aiming towards a unity that expresses itself as beauty. 
Wow. I'm going to take that backwards. Let us imagine that beauty is the subjective experience of a kind of awe mixed with pleasure, perhaps with a dash of gratitude. In other words, the experience of beauty is subjective to each of us. It's, it's internal. And it has that, oh, wow, feeling. Yep. It, it, it's not a cheap word, is it? We, we right. express admiration and appreciation in all sorts of ways. But that, that felt experience of beauty is, is something I think many of us hold in reserve. And now let's imagine beauty being experienced because someone, a player in the glass bead game, has brought into relationship unrelated things, entities, and that fresh, newly created unity gives rise to that pleasurable astonishment. Wow. Um, yeah. So again, I love it. And there's so much to unpack there. Um, yeah. First of all, I think I have to go on just a short tangent, like relating back to the Vitruvian man. It's just interesting for me to, to note that Vitruvius himself was a, a Roman architect that has left us uh, the most extensive writings on, on Roman architecture. And uh, this is where he, he's shown how they built aqueducts, how they did all of these things so that it wouldn't be lost, the, the knowledge. And so, first of all, I, I, I mentioned knowledge, which is very important. Um, and this also relates to actually what we're able to do, because with more knowledge, our circle of influence is becoming much greater. Also about um, Da Vinci, it's interesting that he's shown the man as uh, as a machine, basically the mechanical properties of it. And of course, when we move from the uh, mechanical, physical properties of a circle of influence, which is what I used in the beginning, that is just an entrance point to think about everything we're capable of when we uh, when we harness the powers of our of our mental of our mental aspect and and so on uh, so yeah of course actually with some creativity and knowledge creation we're able to forever expand our circle of influence and be and start on a process of feeling much more at home in the world because uh, not a lot of it not a lot of what we see after that is this uh, menacing uh, environment that we have nothing to do about and um and i think that is that is um uh, very much with uh in line with what you're with what you're saying now as for beauty i love that too because i do dialectic with people and beauty is also a very good starting point for um going after the concept of the good and realizing what the good means, because in beauty, we perceive goodness. So beauty is, is very much related to goodness. And I think it's, it's right there, the point that you make about how it emerges when more than one thing relates to another, that's, that's a, a key point to, 
to point about that and and to say because it tells you that beauty is not in anything intrinsically but in the interplay and interaction of of multiple parts absolutely i just want to take your attention back before you came on to beauty you spoke about um how knowledge can transform our experience of the world and what popped into my head i'm I'm sorry i don't remember the exact words you used what popped into my head was something that heidegger apparently said which is that existence into which we are thrown because we never none of us chooses our birth has an ominous character and that ominous character is something that our our bodies and selves receive in the form of anxiety. Hmm. And so from Heidegger's perspective, and I imagine most, if not all, existentialists from a psychotherapeutic standpoint have accepted that anxiety is fundamental to the fabric of human existence. I think that the reason I'm so interested in the polarity of agency and acceptance is that the notions describe to me how I grew from a character with this great propensity to Mm -hmm. fury and indignation because my arms weren't long enough to touch the top of my head. And at the moment, that was the most important thing in the world. Clearly at that moment, I was not hungry and didn't need the toilet. Um, So fitting in really was the most important thing. But how I grew from that, that little bundle of indignant fury through an extended period of what I would describe as anxiety, just generalized anxiety into being someone who has tilted at windmills and also someone who has successfully contributed to the world by functioning in an activist mode over a sustained period. And it's that functioning in an activist mode over a sustained period that in my picture of myself makes that circle, you know, Vitruvian middle-aged postmenopausal woman circle, <laughs> um, one that is has hashed lines because for me, it is all about, life is all about the connections that I make the fleeting momentary connections and also the lasting connections. And the one of the big challenges for people who, like me, are inclined to look outwards is how do we stay present to the suffering of the world and the catastrophic policies and structures and ideologies that create such lasting, significant damage to the planet and to the species and to all other species because we all rely on the same planet. 
um, the challenge is always how do I live with myself? How do I not exhaust myself? How do I preserve the moral compass and the ethical sensibility that means I fall asleep at night having lived a day as the person I, I strive to be? So related to your notion of goodness. Mm-hmm. Without being overcome by the insolubility of the crises that we on the planet face. Yeah, that's, that is, that is a good question. (laughs) First of all, Um, that is such a good question. And it touches on something that I, I mentioned here on the podcast before, but in general, I think that first of all, I hear you I'm kind of giving an, an implied definition of, of mental health that I really like about having this a, a sustainable mode of living that involves uh, harmonizing both inside like us ourselves and, and things outside us and harmonizing with things outside of us. So I, I really like that, first of all. And also the fact that in there, I can see the point that, you know, I've been thinking about how we usually look at societies and we say uh, the two polarities that we're used to talk about is individualistic and collectivist, right? So the US and China, these are the, the prime examples usually. And I'm, I'm trying to think in, in recent weeks and months that about the fact that for me, it seems like I want to move into the place between them, not, um, not annihilating myself for, for the good of the collective and not shutting out uh, society around me to better myself, but really focus on my connections with other people. And now I'm gonna bring it back to what you were saying uh, to me, I think that the answer to your question would be somewhere in the understanding that, um, you know, so while, while uh, psychically we're not as uh, limited as the Vitruvian man, it, it's, not, it's not physical. We can have great consequences. One person can change a lot. And yet it seems that there is something like the Dunbar, the Dunbar number, right? Of, of the number of people that you can know well and relate with, uh, that is, um, uh, there is, there is a limit to how many people we can relate to, um, personally on a personal level. And that is, that is very interesting because we obviously know a lot of people who touch a lot of people with art, with whatever, they're a sports person, they're uh, writers, they're uh, public figures. And almost we, we, we have to admit that at some point, you know, they are touching the people, but the people who look at them, they don't know them, right? They know their writing or they know them through something and it's not a real connection. And that is something that I noticed for myself about activism, for example, is that it it can be hard because uh, widespread activism that tries to achieve a lot 
uh, with some sort of movement that isn't based on personal connection, it's going to be polarizing. Like some people are going to join because it's so compelling to them, the argument. Some people are going to fight really hard against it. And in the end, it seems to me that we, we do have to accept the, the limit of us being able to speak on a personal level with some people and do that with as many people as we can. But the moment we become a figure rather than a, a real person, uh, we must acknowledge that as well and recognize that from now on, alongside all the good that we're going to create by um, rallying people to our cause, we're, we're also going to rile up people on the other side, which is very interesting. And um, it's, it's kind of about power and the limitations of power that with, with a lot of power, you actually possibly couldn't do just good. Uh, but it's so tempting. So we know politicians who go, you know, they want to achieve a lot and uh, and do a lot of good. Uh, very often they end up doing a lot of bad alongside it. Um, yeah. So um, I'm interested in, in what you think about that and what that raises in your mind. It's fascinating to me, Al, because I think that what what hearing you has stirred in me is first of all, the remembering that stories have a portability. They can detach from the person who first tells the story. Mm -hmm. And the stories detached from the storyteller can travel in ways that ripple out. And it's precisely because of that detachment from the storyteller that the problem of personal power that you are speaking of, it's not solved, but in a sense, it's circumvented. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that my perception in my 20s of the the predicament of power and what we could call ideologicalization, you know, a fresh idea that gets packaged and used and imposed, um, degraded through the imposition is what I'm trying to say with that word I just invented. <laughs> I don't even know if I can pronounce it a second time. Let me try again. <laughs> Ideologicalification. <laughs> um, that was pretty good. It was pretty good. An eight but out think, of ten. <laughs> I don't know, maybe seven. Um, but I think that I was very, I was very interested and concerned about that, and that was at precisely the point that I was digesting what I had begun to learn about postcolonialism. Um, from from a literary teacher. And I think at that point in life, something in me flipped and I became very open and interested in this idea of story and storytelling. And I think it is a political question whose stories get detached 
and in what cultural processes and how does power play out in that process. Um, but I would be delighted if someone listening to us came away and started thinking about toddler anatomy and power inside families and that question. And some people will hear that story and think, my God, what cruelty. And I have days where I think that too. Uh, and some people will hear that and think, oh my God, I know a bit about her. Is that why she just never stays in her place? <laughs> that she never accepts without, without her own reasoning what her place might be? And I think the latter interpretation would be closer to understanding if anybody ever wanted to try and probably only my one daughter would ever want to try <laughs> to, to, to narrate a story that does justice to the life that I've been living. Um, but also it's very interesting because I want to kind of press you, if I may, on some of the assumptions about what activism might be that grounded, you know, we're at the root of your response the most recent project of my own that I would call activism grew out of a citizen's response to the crisis in access to reliable personal protective equipment, PPE, that faced this country at the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. At the time that the crisis was evident, we did not know how much personal protective equipment for the health and emergency services had been stockpiled by previous governments. We've had a lot of previous governments because as you know, since 2015, there's been general elections and the same prime ministers and different prime ministers. Um, those stockpiles included a lot of out of date items, items that had expired. And let's for a moment assume that the expiry of PPE items is meaningful, that there is some kind of physical degradation. The reason that the stockpiles included such, such numbers of items that had expired was that no one had been tasked with the responsibility for overseeing that inventory as if it mattered. Right. And that takes us right to what you were saying earlier, Ayel, about knowledge and information being crucial to human beings having influence. And I don't know if it was Peter Drucker who said, uh, to manage is to measure, but there is very much this sense that we are not custodians of things unless we interact with them in, in the manner of counting or tending or minding or checking expiry dates and so forth. So there was definitely a failure of custodianship in that mm -hmm. situation. At the time that I joined the process, the question seemed to be, how do we get goods that international on an international scale are largely produced in China, the epicenter of the pathogen right. out of China onto these shores. So it was a pipeline problem. And I was part of 
what we dubbed a citizen's procurement service that solved the four sides of that problem. Demand capture, quality assurance in the procurement process, logistics capacity to get goods purchased out of China to the UK, and funding through donations, crowdfunding. So in a, in a, literally in a matter of like seven days, we had started building that process. And it was inevitable as I looked at what it was we were trying to procure that all of this would be easier if we were able to safely procure reliable reusable items. Because one moment of procurement could potentially, let's say, yield 50 occasions of use right. rather than this one-to-one -one relationship into which we had been locked. And of course, disposable has to be disposed of, which raises the question, what is the cost to the planet of having medically used items potentially contaminated with a pathogen that in April 2020, we still did not understand being incinerated or being put into landfill. And so in parallel with what had become my day job of working on the citizens procurement service, I began looking into what were the characteristics of a reliable garment? How could I quickly come to understand that? And who might make one? And this is a great example, Eyal, of me completely not staying in my place. <laughs> because I am many things, but I am not a medical professional. I am not an expert in infectious diseases. I am not a materials scientist or material science engineer. I am not familiar with garment production. I am not familiar with garment design and what it means to make textiles and fashion them in a shape that works for a body in motion. Mm -hmm. I am none of those things. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? How did you overcome it? Well, the way I overcame it was the one thing I knew a bit about, well, quite a bit about, was innovation. And the other thing I knew a bit about was something called open innovation, which is creating a framework in which experts from dis different disciplines can come to regard a problem from a standpoint of, I am willing to exchange with others across difference. And here we're getting at the nub of why that picture of the Vitruvian you know, postmenopausal middle-aged white woman doesn't actually express how I am in the world, mm -hmm. because it, it, to me, the, the project in our, in our century is all about connecting meaningfully across difference. And maybe this is where the Dunbar number actually starts um, gaining a, a kind of, uh, is looked at with a more critical eye. Because if it really is, I mean, what is the Dunmark number? Isn't it like 150? Something like that, yeah. I believe at any given moment, having spent one semester teaching at an international business school and having three cohorts, so teaching 90 students at once, I am quite convinced at any one moment that truly my capacity would be capped at 150. 
However, as a product of the affluence into which I was born, and perhaps with a nod to the, the genes that I have inherited, I have been blessed with many moments where I might meaningfully interact at any given time with a hundred or more people. Mm-hmm. And perhaps because I don't stay in my place, I have had moments of working intensely with such different kinds of people that if we were allowed not a momentary number that we call Dunbar, but some wider number, it would definitely be more than 150. And I imagine it would be more than 1500. And um, I think one of the reasons why, so that project um, came to be called Care Sleeves. And I think one of the reasons why the Care Sleeves project has worked was that everyone that we encountered was motivated about the problem. The PPE crisis was in plain sight. The pathogen was deeply, deeply frightening. And people were looking for a way to engage and being offered the opportunity to engage from a place of their expertise safely through a remote conversation, which was what I held over those months and months and months, um, really met the needs of a lot of people. You know, it spoke directly to their hearts and it engaged their heads. But also, I think one of the things that made, that gave, in those early days that gave Care Sleeves uh, its special, unique quality was the way that we held those conversations. Um, we had a sewing engineer from one of the world's oldest companies manufacturing zippers and trimmings and threads give us a lesson in the strength of seams based on fabric, stitch style, and thread. And he gave this to us as a gift. He was a core part of our team at that point. And we could put it up on our website. And so then when we were talking with people who were talking with factories, there was a common point of reference I didn't have to appear to be master in command of the language and the technical detail. Mm-hmm. I could simply say, well, based on what we've understood from this lesson, this right. is what we need. And I think what matters about this for your and my conversation is that I know, I can tell already that you value expertise. I do. And where, in your experience, where does expertise so often seem to live? Oh, yeah. So expertise is, is a fascinating topic. Um, yeah, I, I will say, first of all, that uh, I, I really like the way in which you um, add complexity um, to, to the whole discussion about the Dunbar number, which, you know, I'm not necessarily an adherent to or something like that. There are also obviously gradations of in, in the kinds of relationships that we can have. Um, and I, I do think that eventually in terms, uh, we don't want to be a Vitruvian man. If anything, we, we do want to, to be many people emerge that where a society emerges that has its own, uh, circle of influence, you know, and, uh, eventually the circle of influence will 
get us to other planets just to uh, make sure that we uh, do survive any sort of uh, intergalactic catastrophe on this planet and so on. So there's definitely, I, I completely agree that we need to uh, expand our circle until it actually um, converges with, with others. And, and that is going to create a whole new level of, of capability and influence. Um, so I'm totally uh, with you on that. Um, yeah, expertise is, is very interesting. It comes up in um, Dialogues of Plato, which I love reading and analyzing. Uh, the word for wisdom in Greek, usually we say it's wisdom, but um, is Sophia. We usually say Sophia is wisdom, but really it's expertise. So very interesting. Um, a shoemaker is sophos, meaning has Sophia in shoemaking. He's an expert. And in a lot of dialogues, this is challenged by people. And some people push it to an extreme. Well, an, uh, when an expert is only a person who, who knows how to produce something and produces it, produces a good product each and every time and never... Uh, makes an error. And if he does, he's not an expert anymore. So that's that's the like expert qua expert, um, the narrow definition of expert. Um, to me, I say that in in terms, if, if you're looking at something with a product, like some sort of, of craft that has a product, that can almost be a, a good explanation of what expertise is. Uh, but when we come to actually dealing with uncertainty and taking a slightly different game, which is life, if it's, if it can be called a game at all, um, where the, the uncertainty just keeps hitting us and there is no perfect decision and there is no product in a sense, there's no physical product to somebody living. Um, then expertise is is slightly different and we we move we shift from looking at uh the quality of of the product and we need to be more uh, more open-minded and look at a range of possibilities like what is it, what was this person trying to do was his action reasonable and is he or she um mentally healthy in the process is it is it actually conducive to well-being so i'd say that the so i'd say an expert in the in the game of life and i know maybe i'm i'm kind of um digressing a bit but an expert in the game of life would be somebody who's who just inside themselves can uh take the temperature so to speak and find that they don't experience struggle too often within themselves, stasis, right? There are no factions fighting. Um, and I think this, this relates to, to what you're saying because um, this is what you're trying to balance when you're saying it's like, if I'm going to chew on more than I uh, bite on more than I can chew, as in, I'm going to worry about many things which I'm not at a at a, at a position to to currently um, affect. This is going to trouble me greatly and not not allow me to sleep at night. So you need to pick 
uh, I don't want to say pick your battles, but it is kind of pick your battles or come up with um, with a sense that you are doing what you can do and you're not uh, you're not consciously ignoring anything that you could do something about. And many times I think what we can do on a personal level is, is start a discussion, right? And organize that first meeting and raise concerns and then invite the, the experts to do that and create this super organism of just uh, more and better minds, better in the sense that there is expertise in some of them and there isn't in another in other places. Um, yeah, and it is interesting because I was talking about the personal and from the personal perspective, there, there is, if not, a Dunbar, if not a Dunbar number that we can agree on, there is some sort of some sort of limit for our capability to be in intimate relationship with other people. But I agree that when it comes to solving problems together, we're probably not so limited there in terms of, of the number of people. And you were uh, you were very nicely connecting it to something that is bigger than ourselves. Uh, so there's a there's a tension there between the the personal and the and the collective, uh, which I was mentioning to it, and this is this is fascinating to um, to explore. Indeed, um, I, I want to ask you, how does um, what is for you so far? I've gotten the the impression that you always want to be able to to reach the top of your head with your hands, and and you come with an approach of, you know, don't, don't take no for an answer, at least initially. So when we introduce acceptance into this, so far we have been discussing things where we haven't accepted the limitations and we try to solve them in other ways. So if I had something on my head, which I really needed to take off as a toddler, now you're saying, well, luckily you're, you can ask somebody to do it for you who's around you. They're going to help. Um is there any place where we do have to exercise our capability for for acceptance things that we that we really should not worry about right now i think that every day is like a meal foy layers and layers and layers and layers of acceptance it's absolutely part of everyday living as i now am aware that I live. Acceptance is absolutely there. And I think for, for to help people picture what I speak of when I use that word acceptance, I live in a rainy country. This may not resonate with you, but I live in a rainy country. And um, like many people- Okay, I have, I have to stop you right there. It rains as much um, here as it does in London. Really? Interesting fact. It just comes here between the uh, months of December and, and March. And in London, it's just uh, drizzling all throughout the year, but um, very close in, in uh, annual rainfall. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm so delighted that I learned that every day. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, nighttime reflection. Uh, today, what did I learn I was wrong about? <laughs> 
So today, the 5th of March, 2022, I was wrong about rain in Israel. <laughs> well, some parts, some parts are very, are very arid, but where I live, yeah, as, as rainy as London. Wow. Excellent. So <laughs> you, you may be able to resonate with this more than I imagined when I, when I suddenly, <laughs> when it suddenly occurred to me to share with you this picture of acceptance. So um, habit might lead either one of us to open our front door and see the rain, the sideways drizzle, if it's drizzling but windy, the pelting down drops, if it's that kind of rain, the sleet, if it's cold, and think, oh, God, it's raining. I'm so pissed off. I'm going to be soggy. I don't want to go. Oh, man, it's raining. And acceptance is opening the front door, seeing what there is to be seen. And from the, the bottom of one's stomach, that kind of bowl that, that sits in the pelvis, observing it's raining. It's raining. On with my day. That's the difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even there, I think the 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 initial response, the maybe more intuitive response of just saying how this relates to me and how this is going to make me feel is again a response of it's it's kind of an individualistic approach because it's always looking at the at the self and their conscious experience and how things are going to um, appear there or feel in consciousness and giving it really a lot of weight in in how in you know when we when we look at reality and we say well is is everything okay then it's just the type of culture that we grew up in that makes us well you know pay a lot of attention to what you're feeling like in terms of uh, pleasure and pain and and the mood and stuff like that for me i think uh so to keep the to keep the rain the rain theme i used not to be a, a winter person so as i just said the winter here is very very rainy the summer is extremely dry it's totally bipolar um and I used to not like the winters until I realized, well, if this doesn't come this winter, I'm not going to have something to drink in the summer. And, you know, these plants that I like uh, rely on this rain. And so once again, the, the shifting of perspective from me outside of myself, giving more weight to things that are not me allows me to come up with a kind of slogan that I use sometimes, you know, if, if I'm not feeling that great, if I'm uh, down for some reason, somebody would ask me, you know, how, how, how are you doing? So I'm not going to say everything's fine. I'm going to say, but everything okay. I, I just don't know it right now, you know, and this, <laughs> this kind of keeps at least my focus where I keep some of the focus outside of myself. It helps me, um, not fear being broken. Like I don't feel that brittle anymore because it's not things come and go on the whole. I know that this is a very 
um, a very um, topical problem that relates to me and not to the rest of, of society and, and the world. And I think that is that also relates to acceptance. And I don't think it's that hard to do. And I'm sure there are other cultures that this is what they teach their children. We just happen not to be born in one. So we have to, to practice it. But it's it's interesting because it's not that hard conceptually, but it's it's just hard exactly because of the word you mentioned habit, which is <laughs> by definition, it's it's what comes to us uh, naturally because we're conditioned to to be like that. If we can break the cycle and break the habit, um, then it's not conceptually hard to see that it would do us a world of good personally if we could get outside of our personality for for just a little bit so let me if i can just for the sake of people listening that was so beautiful i just want to kind of um put some put some little pegs in the sand if Mm -hmm. people want to go learn more about making the shift that that you have made sure intuitively the that shift to moving outside oneself victor frankl the great hero artist. Yeah. Yeah. Talks about self-distancing and that self-distancing is a, a psychological capacity and a conceptual capacity, a mental capacity. That's probably the best word. Self-distancing is a mental capacity that we human beings possess. All of us, I would say across cultures and our willingness to self-distance with awareness is what allows us to change the tape in our head. And that's something that cognitive behavioral therapy theory understood and has formulated for people. So if if people are looking for a, a fast track to that kind of mental reprogramming, mm-hmm a self-aware way oriented towards mental equilibrium and well-being. CBT is one place that people could look. Another place that people could look is the teachings of the Stoics, which I haven't yet been able to verify to what degree Frankel would have known the Stoic writings. It's clear the connections with CBT and Stoicism. Right. I have a book at my house. I'll just say I have a book at my house by a very prominent CBT uh, therapist exactly about stoicism and CBT. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's almost, uh, it's almost like a a direct uh, um, descendant. Yes. What the Stoics understood was that like, like Aristotle said, our character develops with us over time. And what the Stoics understood was that specific daily practices could help us help that character develop in a way that we we thought we think is good. Yep. And yep. part of that development in for stoicism is around accepting that bad stuff happens and offering us the opportunity to think in future tense terms, if the worst thing happens to me today, 
how might I respond? That kind of mental rehearsal widens our capacity to receive events differently. And for me, that widening is such a gift because literally it has dismantled my propensity for anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, we spoke earlier about anxiety being the perception of the ominousness of the world into which we each is thrown at our birth. There's another thing that neuroscientists understand now, and Lisa Feldman Barrett is a preeminent neuroscientist who is bringing this understanding into such accessible terms. She's amazing, yeah. She explains how our brain is continually engaged in prediction. So I want to take both of us back to that habitual perception as we open our front doors, you and Israel, me and England, and we see the rain. So many of the inconveniences that we summon up may well be anchored in past experience because our brains use past experience to make predictions. Mm -hmm. The thing that I encourage people to do if they want to engage with the quality of their own thinking is to begin to reassess what the actual costs of the unfortunate circumstances and events that are contained in the memories. I remember stepping in puddles. In fact, I did this on a walk day before yesterday. It wasn't even a puddle. I stepped on a paving stone that was unstable and mm -hmm. the weight of my foot tipped the stone and the water that was trapped under the stone flew up and some of the water droplets Ugh. fell inside my running sock, making uh -huh. my little naked ankle just for a moment cold. I mean, it was a very visceral experience as mm -hmm. But that's the thing is we, we take so many shortcuts, understandably, because our cognitive energy is always limited. We take so many shortcuts that we can draw these unfortunate occurrences in very broad strokes and come to these conclusions. I hate going to meetings with wet feet or I hate sitting through a concert with wet feet. But in fact, the contours of the actual experiences upon which that life heuristic are based allows us to see that the discomfort may not have been as great as we imagine. And that we have, coming back to agency, we have choices. If I really don't want to spend my workday or my evening at the concert hall in wet shoes, why don't I just bring a spare pair? In other words, why don't I take some responsibility instead of pulling, putting all of my misery on the, on the rain, which as you've pointed out is actually a gift and a blessing that parts of my environment need mm -hmm. stains habitats until it becomes so destructive. Instead of blaming it all on the rain, which is a neutral phenomenon, let me take back some of this on myself. 
if I really don't like the way those trousers feel when they get drenched and I open my door, can I give myself the extra three and a half minutes to change out of those trousers into the trousers that perform better under the conditions that I now see that I have? And this continual willingness to take responsibility is in fact, I would suggest, an enlargement of agency. As long as we are premising our being in the world on what I would call an ethics of care, rather than an ethics of convenience. And going back to the 20th century, the promise of industrial produced consumer goods was the promise of convenience. That regardless right. of our backgrounds, I and my neighbor can both have sparkling fresh dishes because we can each buy what we think is the best washing up liquid or mm -hmm. the best dishwasher tablet. There was a promise in the uniformity of consumer goods that led people to believe that somehow those consumer goods would put us on a path of equality. And truly, a lot of the household-centered consumer goods did free up labor that previously had largely been in the hands of women. So it was right. possible to think about someone actually being able to work and be a mother and live in a relatively well-maintained home without dying of exhaustion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. So first of all, I, I I didn't say this at the beginning, but I too uh, was a was a temperamental child. Like I remember breaking the uh, the glass back door to to the veranda when my sister kind of took my toy or something, put it behind the the door. I was able to break it, which took some force. So I I definitely sympathize with you when it comes to like this will to power and not wanting to uh, not wanting other people to um, speak over my head or things like that, which I thought I was already prepared to deal with, uh, whether that's true or not. But that um, that really was contrasted with uh, with the time when I when I lost my mother, age 10, because that was kind of a thing that and listeners of the podcast know this by now. but. This was a shock to me and something which I I really was one of those things that you just have to accept. And it's not going to take you a short while to realize that it's not the end of the world because it is at that moment. But coming out of it, and we've mentioned some of the writers that heavily influenced me at that time. So uh, Hermann Hesse, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, Buddhist writings, Rollo May was a big influence. Um, I, I so very much uh, related to what you were saying about taking responsibility and realizing uh, uh, Kierkegaard too. So absurdism, just realizing that what I'm feeling moment to moment is not completely out of my control. And it's almost as logical on some level to feel 
at some point where nothing so salient at that moment is happening. I understand that if I see somebody else in uh, who's miserable in front of me, I'm going to feel upset and sad. If I'm seeing somebody who's um, just kind of gambling around, I'm going to be happy with them. Um, but if I'm in a neutral state, there's really, I just, the, the feeling that it is absurd to be depressed right now just started to hit home that I, I do have more agency about that thing and about the, the making these creative mental shifts to different perspectives um, that I don't have to accept whatever comes to me in that sense, whatever emotion takes over me. I think that is something that you touched on that I very, very much like. And it, it really takes creativity. So habit is really what happens when we're not creative about things and something which I wanted to, to, to add to the techniques that help us deal with seeing what the rain is out. So taking responsibilities, packing another pair of socks, of course, also broadening the horizon into just uh, just looking even farther into the future even further into the future you find it's like i might have wet, wet socks even my spare pair might get uh wet okay this could suck but you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a person living in London, living in Israel, whatever. I'm going to be back home. I'm going to sit by the fireplace or take a hot shower. I'm going to dry myself off and, and be cozy again. So what do I learn from that? Now I can picture myself being in an inconvenient situation, unpleasurable but also seeing that it's it's literally not the end of the world and putting it on a on a a wider timeline a longer timeline helps you bring more context in seeing that this is not the all of the story because when we look outside the rain it's like our story is so short it's like the shortest shortest story we're basically saying it's like uh, once there was a person who opened the door got outside got wet and it sucked the end it's like that's basically the story. We're so we're in there. When we tell a story that goes on to tell about more interesting things and about other times of the day when you dry in front of uh, friends or family, that takes the sting out of out of that. And um, I find that this uh, really really helps. Also, another thing for me is I'm asking. Okay, I'm going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be uncomfortable. And sometimes you can take a spare pair of socks. And sometimes the situation calls for you to get muddy. If you um, go out with your car and the road is muddy and it gets stuck, you might have to, to get and to push rocks under the, the rear tire, whatever it takes, and, and get really messy in the process. Well, does this actually have the power to make me mentally unhealthy? No, it, it's, um, I'm not okay on one level of level of, of how comfortable I am, but on the level of, again, going back to this implicit um, definition of mental health that we visited earlier, you know, 
Am I less capable of doing the right thing in a sustainable way uh, going forward? No, absolutely not. Um, this I still have this capability and mentally I'm not going to go down in the dumps just because I'm literally down in the dumps right now. It's not going to transfer from the physical world of pleasure and pain into the, the mental world. Um, so these are just uh, a couple of things that, that I felt were, um, yeah, nice to add. And it's beautiful because the image of the car breaking down and getting stuck in the mud, you know, that's a, that's a bloody inconvenient situation to have yes. the mud in that way. And part of what, part of what adds to the, um, intensity of that situation is that in one's efforts, there is no guarantee that the car will be freed from the mud. Yeah. You know, until, until whatever is rigged up works, one is down in the mud and may stand up muddy without a car that carries them forwards. And, and we human beings um, cope with that kind of wager, that kind of uncertainty all the time. So one of the things that makes it hard for us to put things into perspective, because essentially that's what we're talking about. When we talk about that timeline, eventually I'll get home, I'll be warm, I'll be dry, I'll be clean, is that whether or not we are religious, the human beings that I've met over these decades, each in their own way has a propensity to think that the circumstances in which I must decide how right now am I to live my life are somehow aimed at us. And helping people understand that I respond personally to circumstances that are not directly attacking me, devaluing me, I think is one of the places that we find both freedom to act, exert our agency, but also we find mental equilibrium. And so to just make this super concrete for people, that, that thing that can slip out of our lips in moments of misfortune, why me? Why God is this being visited on me? is part of a personalization process that I really encourage people to take a break from. Mm -hmm. It is not the rains or the muds or the car's intention to make a judgment against you. Now let's take a moment and look at the kind of ruminative thought that, that crops up in, in healthy people and in anxious people. You're stuck in the mud. A voice pops up in your head. It's recriminating you. It's reproaching you because the information about the condition of this road was available to you. You just chose to keep the app switched off and keep the rock music on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why didn't you pay more attention? Why didn't you check things, right? We, mm -hmm. we know that voice. Yeah. And one of the biggest gifts that my father gave, he was a teacher, he was an actor, a stage actor and a teacher of acting. And um, the particular form of anxiety that visits a lot of actors is called stage fright. And stage fright has a couple of different manifestations. The ones that the TV shows and the movies always capture for us are the sweaty palms and the, the 
blocked throat in mm-hmm. and the shaking hands in the moment before stepping into the spotlight. But another form of stage fright or stage anxiety pops up in an inability to be present and a little voice at the back of the head that's criticizing the stage performance as the actor is giving it. And my father always said when, when his students spoke of that, that you need to develop a dialogue with that voice that turns to that voice and says, not now, I'm busy. It doesn't devalue the voice by saying, shut up, you have no place in my head. It doesn't engage with the voice and start the debate about the quality Mm -hmm. of the acting choices that the performers then and there (laughs) are making. It honors the voice, but it also sets a firm boundary. Now is not the time for you and I in our voice to speak. And I found as I um, settled into adult life in England with an ocean between me and my father, my mother at the time lived here, that that bit of acting teacher guidance that he had told me about was really useful for me in managing the inner recriminations and the inner criticism. And as a coach, I've had the opportunity to work with individuals on that process of how do I start to listen to these voices, hear what they have to say, imagine for myself what in my life today allowed these voices to form with such distinctiveness and explore with the voices of criticism, reproach, um, encouragement, because they're not all negative voices, what conversation shall we now have? And I just want to link that idea of the inner voices back to this visceral experience that we've both talked about, getting getting soaked mm-hmm. unwillingly in the rain. I really don't encourage people to disconnect from their sensations. What I do encourage people to do is, is what you demonstrated, which is reframe the assignment of meaning to those sensations. Going back to Vitruvian Man, a lot of what's gone wrong over the centuries in the extreme individualism that has been the kind of defining paradigm in the West has been disconnection and devaluation of the heart and the gut in relation to the rational mind. And obviously Descartes is the key philosophical figure here. And there is knowing in our bodies and there is vital experience in our bodies. And if we know not to fear the vital experience in our bodies, we can connect with our inner vitality gain some sense of reverence and respect for all of those autonomic processes that are happening below our consciousness, but which we can tune into because we all have circulatory systems that give us tangible kinesthetic access to the experience Mm -hmm. of our pulse and give us awareness of the quality of our breath and give us the power to change how our breathing pattern of inhalation and exhalation is working for us. All of that allows us to tune into our vitality. And you mentioned earlier depression. 
Yes, there can be a cognitive sense of futility, and certainly there can be an existential sense of futility. But the the biopsychosocial experience of depression seems, in my understanding, to often arise because we are cut off from our relationship to inner vitality. So if sensations are part of how we access inner vitality, let's keep the door open, but let's try to defer judgment. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's it's actually a moment of revelation where you realize that you can be completely present with your uh, soaked foot there and recognize that, no, this isn't pleasant. And yet at the same time, this does not make you not okay as as a whole um yeah i also want to point out that you know you you were now uh, approaching this this whole notion of of embodiment which uh i happen to know few people uh, dealing with anxiety and related and related um issues and it seems to it seems to for some people get even better results than than CBT or something. So CBT is a very kind of cerebral thing. Like Stoics were definitely talking a lot about the mind and the content of our of our thoughts in terms of of words and how to work with that in order to achieve things that are pre-verbal insight, but a lot of words. Um, and today we are blessed to have uh, things like uh, somatic experiencing and and other uh, techniques that are uh, more embodied in nature that make you reconnect with feelings and and really where things feel and apparently this uh, matters we we don't know it we might not notice it because we're so much in our heads but uh, you can feel some of the things and and get better um, at finding solutions through sensations sometimes than coming up with far-fetched narratives about about uh, what's going on. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask uh, if you want to really, uh, from your perspective, how, how are um, agency and acceptance uh, tied together um, if we had to to sum it up and and for you as a person also how how do you see them today and how do you uh, apply these these concepts uh, today? I think that today could change tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Today, agency and acceptance are in a beautiful dance that involves lots of kind of spiraling and interweaving. And I, I know viewers can't see this, but you know, my hands are moving um, and my fingers are, are pressing between each other. I think it's important to see them as different and distinct the same way that my left hand is, is similar to, but different than my right hand. Um, and I, I know, <laughs> I used the metaphor of agency on a day of acceptance on a daily basis image earlier, but life, a rich and active life in my experience is full of acceptance. What it isn't organized towards is stasis. I'm not trying to freeze things in their place. What I am trying to do is 
participate in and sometimes orchestrate what I would like to call dynamic equilibrium. And I have the sense that dynamic equilibrium is both responsive to the wider world and also in terms of my body budget, to use Lisa Feldman Barrett's phrase, mm-hmm. dynamic equilibrium is also sustainable. Beautiful, beautiful. And I can, uh, yeah, I, I can co-sign that with, with ease. So that resonates a lot with, with my thoughts um, as well. Yeah, Kate, this has been wonderful. Um, wonderful, wonderful. And, and before we part ways, I'd love to, I'd love for you to share with everyone, um, a website, blog, whatever, uh, place where your thoughts and you can be found on for people who wish to follow them. My thoughts are sprinkled about, <laughs> um, and I'm not very good at cataloging them. If anyone would like to directly get in touch with me, the most memorable, easiest place to find me is a very simple website that is Dr. Kate Hammer, all one word, no punctuation.com. Alternatively, if you're if you want to try to get the wider view, whatever wide view I'm presenting at the at the given moment you seek it. I do have a link tree and my link tree is got my first name and my surname, first letters capitalized again, all bunched together. So it's capital K Kate, capital H hammer on link tree. And I would love people to go to link tree because I'm, I'm an, I'm a young poet in an aging body and my very first acceptance for publication in a wonderful digital journal called Street Cake has happened. And so by the time this podcast is out, I will have my first published poem in Street Cake's March issue. And I will definitely put that into my link tree. Fantastic. Yeah. And if you people go on Linktree and find Kate, then you will see that she's far from being a one trick pony. Yeah. You have uh, diverse interests and, and, um, and activities. Yeah. So Kate, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and um, until next time. Wonderful. This has been terrific. Thank (laughs) you so much, Ayo. Take care. Thank you.